Lord, thee I love with all my heart. I pray thee never from me depart. With tender mercy, cheer me. Earth has no pleasure I would share. Yea, heaven itself, itself were bo- void and bare if thou, Lord, were not near me. And should my heart for sorrow break, my trust in thee can nothing shake. Thou art the portion I have sought, thy precious blood my soul has bought, Lord Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, my God and Lord, mistake me not, I trust thy word. Amen. As we trust God's word, we trust in God's mouthpiece, the words of Jesus. And so we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. And talk about discipling, that is, what does it mean to be a disciple, to follow Jesus? What does he want from his disciples? And there's a lot in the Sermon on the Mount about that. And today we get to some of the tougher stuff that takes a little bit of uh, more time and care to kind of get to it. So I want to revisit something we talked about at the very end of last week, and that is this. Disciples obey, they want to obey their master who they're following, so disciples obey, we want to obey Jesus, but for one very specific reason, and that is we obey from God's favor, not for God's favor. Whatever Jesus might ask of us or tell us to do throughout our life, it is not so that we get anything from God. We don't have to earn our salvation, though our heart always goes back to wanting to try. We're not even trying to earn brownie points from God to say, man, if I do this, God's going to be happy and make things go well. No, disciples obey because we have received the mercy and grace of Jesus that we do not deserve. Absolutely, Ephesians 2.8 is true. By grace, we are saved. And it's not just by grace we are saved. It's also by grace that we grow in faith. Anytime we grow deeper and more mature, it's not, we don't get credit for it, Holy Spirit does. It's God's work. So disciples, yes, obey Jesus and want to, to do what he says, but it's out of thanksgiving and love for what God has given to us, his mercy and grace and new life. We obey from God's favor, not, not for it. We already have it. And so, as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus first blesses his disciples. Blessed, 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 the poor in spirit. That's all of us broken before God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have all blessings in Jesus. It says, blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God's saving work. He says, you will be filled. He gives us his righteousness. So Jesus blesses his disciples. And then on Wednesday, we talked about the callings he gives right after he blesses them. And Jesus then says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those are callings jesus saying now that i've blessed you and given you my righteousness my grace my goodness now now here's what you're going to go out and look like when you live that out you will be salt to the earth you will be light to the world and then now we get into more specifics of jesus describing what it looks like to be a disciple to live as a disciple let me help you get into Uh, some of the difficulties, I would say, or specifics of today. Where I grew up, which is, some of you know, I grew up uh, northeast of Detroit, just kind of beyond the suburbs. As they kind of end, it opens up. It's kind of like Hamilton is to Holland. Nothing's farther than 15 minutes away that you'd ever need, but, but there's more space, and it's country driving to get there. That's about like where I grew up. But some of the driving, we're always 
five, eight, ten miles from home, no matter where you were before. And there's some big crowned country roads, and we always called them car-eating ditches, on one side or the other. And if there weren't large ditches, there might be trees lined up. And so you, when you're learning to drive, there, there's other stressors than just other cars on the road. You, you really got to be careful and stay in the middle. And then when winter comes along and there's ice and snow everywhere and, and uh, maybe a young 16-year-old driver trying to get home from an evening practice or something, it can be a little dicey and scary, right? It's slippery and, and you think, man, that ditch, if I fall in, nobody's going to see me. If I go over there, I'll, I'll smack that tree. And, and so what happens, you want to stay right in the, in the middle of the road and proceed cautiously down the middle so you don't slide into either a ditch on one side or, or hit a tree on the other, so you kind of go right down the middle. I think that is maybe the best analogy to talk about some of these next things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's not where I grew up. That's a road up north. Some of you recognize it. And I couldn't find one with nice, nice enough ditches, so there's trees. So we imagine when Jesus says some specifics and some things that might confuse us, <coughs> let's not forget, let, let's drive down the middle of the road of what is God's good will for his disciples, for his people? What, what does God want us to take away? What is, what is the uh, general truth of what God wants to tell us and how he wants us to live? And so uh, when, when you're tempted to think, man, that, that sounds strange, or I'm not sure what to make of it, don't forget, in every section, there's kind of a general middle lane truth that Jesus is telling us, and we want to focus on that and not veer off and get you know, lost in a ditch or hit a tree. So let me explain a little more. The Sermon on the Mount takes around 15 minutes to read. And if you read it in your head faster, but, it, but listening to it out loud, about 15 minutes. Did Jesus only give a 15-minute sermon, and that was it for the next however many months he was having people follow? No. He talked a lot, presumably nearly every day, to his disciples. Other stories where feeding of the 5,000, it seems like he's been talking all day because they don't have food and, they, and they're hungry. It's all day, not 15 minutes. So what we have then is Matthew has to say, well, I can't write everything down. What am I going to write down in my gospel? So he's summarizing larger things Jesus said and puts main points there. And so Matthew gives us main points. You might call it uh, God's general truth. But also then there's some specifics that you've heard already that might make you think, man, I'm not sure what to make of this. And Jesus, yes, talks to specifics of his day, and, and they do apply to ours, but maybe always not in the same way you might think initially, because remember, language works in, in different ways. And so we're going to look at each section here, and what is God's general truth? What does Jesus want from his disciples? And then try not to veer off into a ditch or, or hit a tree and drive right down the middle. So with all of the specific moral teachings of Jesus here, we're going to look at and say, well, what is God's what is God's main good will for us? What is God's will for his disciples? What does it mean to follow as a disciple from God's favor, not for God's favor? Does that make sense? Yes, no? Yes, no. I know it's early today, but we'll do our best. Okay, so let's get to that first section. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, 
Now he's talking about some of the commandments. We did some of that last week. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's a commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as Jesus talks about different commandments or different things, he's telling you what God's good will is because the Ten Commandments are God's will. It's, it's what God wanted for his people to show what, what is God's character, what is good for families, good for humanity, good for society. But it's not just the little law, right? We talked about that last week. It's not just uh, you shall not murder and anything, anything other than that is acceptable. No, you shall not murder means not just don't kill people, but help them. Don't hate them either. Resolve your disputes, care for one another, help them in every way. That, that's what God really wants. So here, what would God's general truth be here in the sixth commandment? Do not commit adultery. That, that's the don't. But what's the do? What are you supposed to do? What is God's general truth? What is God's will here? And I would say it's this. Be faithful in marriage. If you're married, be faithful to your spouse. That means love, honor, cherish. Remember some of these words? Love, honor, and cherish your husband or wife for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health. Remember those? See, it is God's will that marriages are, are strong and healthy and good and godly because when that happens, God's world and societies flourish. Now, yes, uh, singleness is also a gift from God as well, and, and honor that as well. But God's idea to preserve societies that you know more generations come is through stable, good, godly marriage. Adam and Eve, the beginning. From the beginning, God has a man and a woman commit their lives together for a lifetime, and through them, a lot of people are blessed. So think about a couple that you knew or have known, and they might still be alive and they might not be, that were married for a really long time, and you really respected them. So, so a couple you knew that was married maybe 40 or 50 or 60 or even 70, we've had some at Zion, 70 years. And not just that they stuck it out for 70 years, but a couple that you knew that, that enjoyed each other and loved each other and liked each other. And they were, they were a blessing to so many people, right? You can think of people that you know that, that bless their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, their, their neighbors, their friends, their colleagues, their, their bosses, the people that worked under them. They, they blessed so many people, which tells you one marriage can bless tons of people. Yet, as beautiful as God's will is for marriage, is sin absolutely destructive? Yes. Yeah. Sin is destructive, and in every way it lies to us and destroys and leaves a trail of destruction. Sin always leads to death. And so Jesus wants his disciples to, to live God's will and therefore bring life to those around them. And so Jesus says, it's not just don't break this law. It, it's watch out in your heart. Watch out for the lust in your heart. That, that's the first step. Notice it there and deal with it. Which is to say, pull the weed the first time you see it in the garden. Don't say, I'll take care of it later, or tomorrow, or in a week. Don't let it grow because it will poison and ruin you. Be faithful. That's God's truth here. But Jesus continues, and here's where it gets confusing. Jesus says, now, if your right hand causes you to sin, your right eye, sorry, hand 
next. Right eye causes you to tear it out, throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, what do we make of this? Well, how many of people actually think Jesus really, truly does want us to physically cut out our eyes and our hands? Well, there are some in history that have thought that. I don't think that's what Jesus means. So what does he mean, or how do we, how do we look at this? That's where, okay, to drive down the middle, you say, okay, what's God's general truth here? That is, be, be faithful in marriage and, and watch out for the first signs of, of, of sin and deal with him there. So God's general truth, that's driving down the middle lane. Now, what are the ditches or trees that we might fall into or hit? First one might be, uh, the word I'll use is hyper-literalism. Let me explain that. Jesus, I don't think, wants us to cut off our hands or gouge out our eyes. But if we take him for meaning what exactly what he says, that, that's what we would do, right? Yeah. I don't think he wants that. Jesus likes to use hyperbole. Right? The best thing ever, which may not be in our life, but we say it now. Jesus uses a lot, and Matthew seems to remember Jesus' hyperbole more than the others and uses them. So if you read Matthew, you'll hear a lot of this. Now, the other thing is, if we were uh, to really take to heart Jesus' words here, we actually would, all of us would have some sort of limb missing, right? Something in us has caused us to sin, whether it's your eye or your hand or your foot or our hearts. What do we do there? So if we took literally or hyper-literally what Jesus said, we'd all be missing something. And I believe God created our bodies in his image and wants us to glorify him with our bodies, so he doesn't want us to do that. Second thing, here's a problem if you try to take specifically every word what he says here, hyper-literally. Jesus only talks about your right eye and your right hand, which then would mean your left hand is free for all, right? <laughs> right? He only talks about your right hand and your right eye. So uh, if we hyper-focused on his words only, we would only have to worry about a right hand, left eye. Anything else that causes you to sin, don't worry about it. You're okay, right? I don't think that's what he means. But on the other hand, we don't want to sway to the other side and say something like, well, then Jesus doesn't really mean it, right? Do whatever you want. God just wants you to be happy. You know, sin's not that big of a deal. Uh, Jesus doesn't really, no, we, we don't want to say that either. It is destructive. Lust is destructive. And if we let it grow, it will turn it into more. And, and sin is that serious. And disciples should be serious about the sin in our own hearts because as Jesus says, eternity apart from Jesus really is the worst thing we could have. So here Jesus is telling us God's will, God's general truth, and that, and that is no, be, be faithful in marriage and even be faithful when you're not married in, in our sexuality. Be faithful to God. Okay, let's move to the next one. Maybe even harder, so that'll help us. It, Jesus then said, it was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's from Deuteronomy 24. Talks about that. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then he continues. 
Oh, I didn't put it up there. Continues. Oh, no, that's all of it. Sorry. It's all there. Now, I realize these words here, as you read them or heard them before, or maybe you're familiar with them, can make many of us very uncomfortable and maybe even upsetting. And I get it. God will challenge us. God will make us uncomfortable. And God's word may even upset us. That, that's what it means for us not to be God and God to be God. But let's make sure we're uh, in some ways getting upset or uncomfortable for the right reasons and not veering off and, and hitting a ditch or, or, or a tree. You see, this isn't the only time that Jesus himself talks about divorce and marriage and remarriage. And it's not the only time the entire Bible talks about it. So Jesus' words here are, are a, a slice, a summary, and one piece, not the end of the conversation. Not the exhaustive, not the definitive, not the only thing. So, if we're asking, what is God's will about marriage? What does God want from his disciples? And, and focus on that first, where does that take us? I think it's what Jesus is saying. God wants faithful, lifelong marriages. That seems like a good thing, right? It seems like God's will, when you look at the scriptures, what Jesus is saying, that's a good thing. When there are faithful, lifelong marriages, people are blessed, and, and families are blessed, and children are blessed, and, and societies flourish. This is good. This is God's will. Now, that's an ideal. Does God's ideal always happen in our lives? No. Does God's ideal always happen in, in the community? No. Does God's ideal always happen in a lot of places? No, it doesn't, does it? But God's ideal can still be that, right? God does want faithful, lifelong marriages. However, the world is broken. My, my heart is broken. And so, do marriages at times break down? Yes. And does the Bible in other places talk of other reasons that might be necessary why people would divorce? Yes. And can God redeem broken things and make them whole? Yeah. And can God bring uh, new things where, where we have lost? Yes. The resurrection of, of Jesus is true and real, and God can redeem broken things. God can forgive and renew and resurrect. And can God bring the resurrection of a new godly marriage where in the past there were ashes of a failed one? Absolutely. And so if you're there wondering, like, oh, man, I, I'm divorced, and this makes me feel really terrible. I don't, know what to, I don't know what to do. Jesus brings his love and forgiveness and grace to you and absolutely can forgive and heal and renew and bring a resurrection of a new godly marriage where there wasn't in the past. So that's where uh, focus on what, what is the main truth here that Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. And, and it is true. God does want faithful, lifelong marriages. Now also, think about what Jesus was talking to in his own day. So you had, why would Jesus bring this up? Well, in Jesus' day, the Jewish people had developed really, really, really lax divorce laws to the point where a number of men particularly, and rabbis recently had come up with, well, if you don't like your wife for any reason, you basically can make up something and cast her away. So one rabbi even wrote, uh, even if she burnt dinner, that's a good enough excuse to discard your wife. 
So when you see that, oh, of course Jesus then would comment on what people were doing wrong. And particularly a way that women were mistreated and abused more than men because men had power in this situation. So, of course, uh, Jesus would want to protect women and say, no, that, that's not how you treat them. That's not what happens. They're not property to be discarded at, at your whim. They're, they are equals and people made in, in God's image just like you. And God wants faithful, lifelong marriages. That, that's not how you do it. So Jesus is saying, remember what God's good will is here. God really does want a husband and wife to commit their lives to each other and then therefore be a blessing to those around them. Okay, now the last one. There's three sections today. The third one, a little less dicey than those, but still uh, helps to focus on the main thing. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not even take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And if you do not take an oath, and do not take an oath by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or black, or you might have said appear after it's gone missing, let what you say be simply yes and no, anything more than this comes from evil. So before you... I get into the specifics of, well, what if I'm in court? Am I, am I should not take any oath? Before you get lost in the weeds and, and hit a tree, what would Jesus' main point be? Right? Be truthful and honest. Right? Be truth, speak truthfully, be honest, be trustworthy. And don't get lost in, in the, the weeds or trees or ditches of, can we take an oath or not? Jesus was talking to people who had made this really, really extensive list of which oaths were more important than others. And so people in Jesus' day argued about things like, well, if you uh, are talking to somebody and you twist your fingers together and put them behind your back, then you can not tell the truth, right? At least that's what people told me when I was younger in school. Well, if, as long as I have my fingers crossed behind my back, then I don't have to tell you the truth. And I can lie to you and get away with it. But if we pinky swear on it, you better not, right? You better tell me the truth because you, we know how dumb that is, right? Sorry. Uh, same thing. People had made a thing like that. And so Jesus is picking apart some of those and saying, no, no, no. Disciples of Jesus are to be truthful and honest. Disciples of Jesus are, are to be so truthful and honest that everyone around, Christians and non-Christians, notice. Right? What, what if we disciples of Jesus were so truthful and so honest and, and such full of character that non-Christians around us wanted to spend time with us and know why we're different? Or what if disciples of Jesus were so truthful and honest and trustworthy that non-Christian business owners would want to hire Christians, especially because they knew how honest and trustworthy they were? Or can you imagine non-Christians wanting to vote for Christians for city councils and for school boards and other community things because they knew them to be full of, of character and integrity and truth, we should be known that way. It's what Jesus is saying because he looks at you and I and says, you are salt. You are light. Salt the earth. Let your light shine so that others don't see you but, but see you and, and give glory to God. But with all of these, so we've tackled some uh, tough things and, and maybe brought up some tough things for you. We always have to remember that we are disciples by grace, by the mercy of our Savior, 
by the mercy and grace of the one who died and rose for us. And yes, we want to obey our Savior, but, but it's not because we gain anything by it. It's, it's because we've already gained everything from him. And so, yes, by grace we are saved, but also by grace we grow. And so, yes, Jesus wants his followers to do what he says, and you look through the record of church history, everybody, Christians want to try to live out the Sermon on the Mount, but there's always the point where we realize we haven't, and we've fallen short, and what do you do? I think that's where it drives you back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where you say, again, I am poor in spirit, Jesus, I need you, and Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Or Jesus, I have no righteousness in my own. I, I'm, I'm nothing. I need you. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be filled. And so anytime we, we look at somebody who's going, man, such a tough standard. I, I've broken this. I've sinned. I, I've, and Jesus says, yes. But you're the poor in spirit, and I have given you the kingdom. And so, yes, the disciples obey their Savior, but it's because we have already received every mercy and every grace and every favor from him. 